0: There once lived a family just east of Seattle, in the tiny rural town of Carnation, Washington. Surrounded by the beautiful landscape of the Cascade foothills, this safe, close-knit community was known for Fourth of July festivals and fall harvest celebrations. But on Christmas Eve of 2007, this serene little town would become known for something else. This is the case of the Anderson family massacre. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 12 of Crime Cave. I'm Christy, and this is a case I was actually unfamiliar with until four days ago, but I wanted to go ahead and cover it. Be sure to check out the Crime Cave podcast Instagram and Facebook page. And also stay tuned for a brand new segment at the end of each episode where I answer the listener question of the week. So if you have a question about a case, the podcast itself, or anything at all, feel free to message me on social media to have your question featured on a future episode. But now, this is the case of the Anderson family massacre. 25 miles east of the bustling urban metropolis of Seattle lies a quaint farming town called Carnation, covering just over one square mile of land. The population hovers at just over 2,000 people, mostly employed in farming, as Carnation is deemed one of the most productive agricultural regions in the Northwest. It's nestled right on the Snoqualmie River and considered a great place to raise a family. Within that square mile lived the Andersons, Wayne, age 60, and his wife Judy, 61, laid down roots incarnation back in the early 1980s. Wayne was an engineer at Boeing, while Judy was a U.S. postal worker, both known to be friendly and well-respected in the community. Wayne and Judy would raise three children, a son, Scott, and two daughters, Mary and Michelle. Michelle Kristen Anderson was born in 1978. She was particularly close to her brother, Scott, saying he was the only one who really understood her. Michelle was artistic and by all accounts had a fairly uneventful upbringing. She would graduate high school in 1997 and at the age of 24, she met a man named Joseph McEnroe in 2002 in an online video game chat room. Acquaintances described Joseph as a little bit weird. He frequently mentioned that he had a spirit guide that would tell him how to live his life He struggled with a speech impediment since childhood, and at one point, Joseph was diagnosed with severe anxiety. Although counseling and medication were recommended, he couldn't afford either. Soon after Joseph and Michelle began dating, Joseph moved to Washington to live with Michelle in a mobile home park, and they became inseparable. Neighbors would describe the pair as strange, unstable, and paranoid. They had no friends outside of their relationship. In fact, they ended up blacking out the windows in their trailer, thinking people were out to get them. During their increasingly volatile relationship, Michelle was heard screaming at Joseph, you have no job, you have no money, you have no life. However, it should be noted that Michelle was unemployed as well. The couple lived there until 2006, when financial struggles eventually forced them to move into a trailer on Michelle's parents' 10-acre property in the tiny town of Carnation, where violent crime was virtually unheard of. On December 24, 2007, Wayne and Judy hosted Christmas Eve dinner at their home. Michelle and Joseph were to attend, as well as Michelle's brother Scott, his wife Erica, both 32, and their two young children, five-year-old Olivia and three-year-old Nathan. Michelle's sister Mary was sick that night and could not attend. Now, typically, if you're on your way to Christmas Eve dinner, it wouldn't be unusual to be getting into the holiday spirit and maybe even have a Christmas carol running through your head. But in Michelle's mind... She was repeating a vow she had made to herself, which was, if her family didn't start showing her respect by December 24th, she would kill them all. Apparently, Joseph was on board with this commitment. Michelle and Joseph were the first to arrive. They walked into a relaxed and joyous atmosphere of cozy tranquility. Christmas tree lights were blinking, the smell of roast in the oven... Wayne relaxing on the couch watching TV, and Judy, who was in another room, finishing wrapping up gifts for her two beloved grandchildren who were on their way. What Wayne and Judy didn't know was that their daughter and her boyfriend were not going to come bearing gifts. Instead, they were fully armed. Joseph joined Judy in the other room and attempted to distract her as she finished wrapping presents while Michelle spent time with her dad in the living room. At some point, Michelle drew her handgun and attempted to shoot him, but missed. As her mother frantically ran into the room, Michelle's gun jammed. And that's when Joseph stepped in and shot Wayne in the head. Judy was then shot once in the body and once in the head. After meticulously cleaning the house and dragging her parents' bodies into a shed behind the home, The two sat patiently and waited for Michelle's older brother, Scott, her sister-in-law, and her little niece and nephew to walk through the door. After about an hour, the excited young family arrived for Christmas festivities. Although they didn't immediately see Wayne and Judy, nothing seemed amiss, so they began to settle in. That's when Michelle and Joseph suddenly appeared. Michelle confronted her brother and revealed her gun, but Scott charged at her, and a struggle ensued. Scott reportedly put up a major fight, but Joseph restrained him, and Michelle opened fire on her brother, shooting him four times. Joseph then shot Erica, but despite being mortally wounded, she managed to climb over the couch and get a hold of a cordless phone to call 911. Dispatchers only heard a brief portion of the call, which sounded like guests arguing at a party, and then a scream. When Michelle realized that the 911 call had gone through, she ran outside to lock the gate to prevent authorities from accessing the property. Meanwhile, inside the home, Joseph snatched the phone from Erica's hand, "'ripped out the batteries and threw them across the room. "'He bizarrely allowed the desperate mother "'to momentarily huddle with her children. "'As she crouched down trying to protect them, "'she screamed, "'Not the kids,' "'and then he shot her in the head. "'After witnessing the brutal murder of his mom and dad, 3 year old Nathan picked up the batteries from the phone "'and innocently held them out to Joseph.' in a heartbreaking attempt at a peace offering. But the toddler was shot in the head. Five-year-old Olivia clung to her mother, with her family laying lifeless around her. Joseph then apologized to her for killing her family, before shooting her in the head at point-blank range. Michelle would later say that she asked him to kill her niece and nephew because she didn't want any witnesses and... That the kids would be scarred for life for seeing their parents murdered. How big of her. Police were dispatched to the home. However, the locked chain on the gate entrance was apparently enough to deter them from proceeding further, and they inexplicably retreated. Hence, the bodies weren't discovered until two days later. On December 26th, when postal workers were expected to return to work, Judy's co-worker and best friend, Linda Teal, knew something was wrong when Judy was a no-call, no-show after the holiday. She went to Judy and Wayne's home to check on them and discovered the massacre. 911? Uh, there's been a murder. There's three people dead that I can see right now. Inside? I just came up. She works with me. Inside the house? Yes. What do you see? There's a baby and a man and a woman, and she's my best friend. During the call, Linda let the dispatcher know that their daughter Michelle lived on the property in a mobile home and that she had been upset with Judy and Wayne. Linda said she was worried that Michelle may have been involved in the killings, stating to the dispatcher, The gate is locked, which makes me wonder if her daughter did it. Which is scary, because I might be up here with a murderer. Police arrived at 9.30 a.m. They first found Scott... Erica, and Nathan. And upon closer inspection, they found Olivia, huddled behind her mother. They then found the bodies of Judy and Wayne in the shed. Around three hours into the investigation, Michelle and Joseph suddenly pulled up. They didn't seem phased at all by the police cars surrounding the property, nor did they ask if Wayne and Judy were okay, which immediately raised suspicions. When police questioned them, they said they had been on their way to Las Vegas to get married, but changed their mind. Then they returned home to get a wallet, and then returned home a second time to get fruit. They didn't seem too concerned as to why there were multiple emergency vehicles surrounding the property. When asked what she thought happened here, Michelle guessed, Maybe my dad had a heart attack? When pressed further she broke down and confessed as did joseph the confessions went on for nearly two hours and they detailed who killed who and both were arrested on the spot during this time michelle brought up money more than 35 times in her explanation as to why she killed her family she told detectives that she was tired of everybody stepping on her and that she was mad because her parents had begun pressing her about paying rent money for living in the mobile home on their property after her parents had let them live there rent-free for a whole year. She also stated that she was mad because she and her brother weren't as close as they had been prior to him getting married and having a family. Furthermore, she also claimed that she had loaned Scott $40,000 and that he would not pay her back. Now, let's think about this. Michelle was chronically unemployed. There is no way she had 40 grand to lend her brother. When asked how long she had been planning the murders, Michelle replied that she had decided two weeks ago that she would kill her family, and she asked Joseph to help her. On December 28, 2007, Joseph and Michelle were each charged with six counts of aggravated murder. Now, unbelievably, despite the fact that they both confessed in detail to the murders, the process was drawn out for a number of years, costing taxpayers millions. Joseph showed little emotion through most of the trial, which took place in the spring of 2015. However, that would change when he took the stand. At one point, he began laughing hysterically. And when describing the look on Judy Anderson's face when he shot her, He put his arms over his head and began rocking back and forth uncontrollably. He also suddenly developed a twitch that he stated only happens when he's stressed out. However, the prosecuting attorney pointed out that when he was arrested for a mass murder, which one would assume would be a stressful situation, there was zero mention in the officer's report of him having any sign of a twitch. This was really just bad theater. Joseph was found guilty on March 25, 2015, on all six counts of aggravated first-degree murder and was sentenced to life in prison without parole. He is serving his sentence at the Washington State Penitentiary. Michelle's trial began in January of 2016. In his opening statements, the prosecuting attorney stated, "...the motive for these murders is pure, unadulterated greed." The pivotal piece of evidence was Michelle's lengthy confession, and the jury found her guilty of all six counts of aggravated murder. She was sentenced to life in prison without parole, and is currently imprisoned at the Washington Correction Center for Women. And now for today's listener question. Okay, our listener question of the week is from Tony. And she wants to know, how do I choose the music for each episode? That is honestly one of my favorite parts of doing this podcast is choosing the music. I really like trying to figure out what music will fit best with the mood of each episode and each segment within the episode. Spotify for Podcasters has a lot of different music right there on the site that you can use royalty free and they're divided up into genres and types and moods and that kind of thing. So... That's typically where I get most of my music right now. Although I have branched out into a website called Artlist, which has a huge variety of cinematic, ambient, atmospheric type sounds. So I'm currently exploring that as well. Thanks for your question, Tony. Hey, everybody, it's Ray, the roadie, and this is Hollywood Mike with the Rock and Roll Chicago podcast coming to you from the Illinois Rock and Roll Museum on Route 66 in Joliet, Illinois, where once a week we are interviewing local musicians and singer songwriters, and the podcast itself covers a wide range of topics, including but not limited to the history of rock and roll in Chicago, the current state of the scene, and the challenges and opportunities facing musicians today. So join us every Tuesday for a new exciting episode of the Rock and Roll Chicago podcast. Thanks for joining me. This episode of Crime Cave has been brought to you by Fortress Defense Consultants, providing security consulting for educational institutions, corporate facilities, and houses of worship, as well as pepper spray. Situational awareness and defensive firearms training for police and private citizens. Find Fortress on the web at FortressDefense.com. Contact Fortress directly at 708-522-8060 or email them at info at FortressDefense.com. Avoid being the subject of a future episode of Crime Cave. Train with Fortress today. Until next time.